When the sun was sunken, he set out to visit the lofty hall building. How the Ringdanes had used it for beds and benches when the banquet was over. Then he found there reposing many a noble asleep after supper. Sorrow, the heroes, misery knew not. The monster of evil, greedy and cruel, tarried but little, fell in frantic and forced from their slumbers thirty of Thanemen. Thence he departed, leaping and laughing his la- to his lair to return to with surfeit of slaughter sallying homeward. In the dusk of dawning, as the day was just breaking, was Grendel's prowess revealed to the warriors. Then his meal-taking finished, a moan was uplifted, morning cry mighty, the man-ruler famous, the long-worthy Ethling, sat very woeful, suffered great sorrow, sighed for his liegemen. When they had seen the track of the hateful pursuer, the spirit accursed, too crushing that sorrow, too loathsome and lasting. Not longer he tarried, but one night after continued his slaughter, shameless and shocking, shrinking but little from malice and murder. They mastered him fully. He was easy to find then, who otherwise looked for a pleasanter place of repose in the lodges, a bed in the bowers. Then was brought to his notice, told him truly by token apparent, the Halthane's hatred. He held himself after further and faster, who the foeman did baffle. So ruled he, and strongly strove against justice, lone against all men, till empty up toward the choicest of houses. Long was the season, twelve winters' time torture suffered, the friend of the Skildings, every affliction, endless agony. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Jonathan, and this is Fortune's Wheel. Today's episode, episode 53, is entitled The Greatest of Heroes. For our keen-eared listeners, you probably picked up on this excerpt, but for those who didn't recognize it, this was from the second chapter of the Anglo-Saxon tale called Beowulf. The story's always fascinated me. It was the first story I can remember reading, with the exception of Shakespeare, of course, where I had to actively try to understand the language of the story as well as the plot line. If you haven't had the chance or have passed up the opportunity to pick this book up, I'm telling you, it's worth the time. Now, there are some spoilers here for those that uh, are in, you know, worried about spoilers, but I do hope you continue to listen. This famous poem was, to the best of our approximations at this point, composed sometime between, uh, well, who knows really? It could be as early as the 700s, or it could be, uh, according to some reports, late 900s. We just don't know. In the context of this podcast, though, should it be the late 900s, we can think of this time frame as the time of Ethelred the Unready's ascendancy to the crown, to the birth of William the Bastard, a very interesting time period as we've seen. In fact, the oldest surviving record of Beowulf is from this time period, but of course many doubt that this was the original. 
and we have no idea who wrote it either. Nope, we just simply refer to the author as the Beowulf poet. And the thing about this poem is that it's Anglo-Saxon. There's a couple of interesting things to draw from this, too. First, Anglo-Saxon was a far cry from our modern concept of poetry, with its different rhyme schemes and figurative components and structure. Beowulf is beautiful and filled to the brim with some of the greatest descriptions in all of world literature. But yeah, don't expect much of a flow or melodic pattern to reach your ears. In its original form, again, being Anglo-Saxon, it was very difficult than our modern English to, to read. This was written decades before the injection of Latin and Hellenic influences brought through Norman French-speaking Normans. The sounds made in Anglo-Saxon are hard and guttural, mirroring the Germanic and Celtic influences from previous centuries. And Beowulf, though difficult to consider as poetry, so to speak, due to its distance, again, from our modern idea of poetry, does have its own intense, dark beauty. The other interesting thing about this being Anglo-Saxon is that it's not about an English hero. In fact, it doesn't take place anywhere near England. It takes place in Denmark, which speaks to the already deep connections in England before Swain Forkbeard's invasion. More than 3,000 lines later, we've witnessed every conception of what defined an English hero, which is essentially one of our major reasons we tell stories in the first place, right? To define a culture's most revered characteristics of the type of man and woman they should all, we should all, strive to emulate. To become. That's found in every culture throughout all of time. So, supposing this was written in the midst, or the wake, of King Ethelred II, one can completely understand how a story like this would be written. Was Beowulf a reminder to the people about what kind of king they should demand for themselves? Who knows, really? And honestly, it probably was written long before King Ethelred II, so the fact that copies were being made during and, or before, during, and after his reign, could that be taken as a sign that maybe the culture was reminding itself in comparison to its current leader? Again, we just don't know. So how should we appreciate this story, though? Was it written as a direct response to something? Say, failures of an English crown? Is it a story to give future generations a glimpse as to the interconnectedness between England and the Scandinavian peoples? Or can we simply enjoy it for what it is? A badass story about a badass hero, complete with monsters and swords and action and subtle innuendos to deeper tropes and biblical stories even. The story itself begins on a winter's day when the mighty King Hrothgar invites his warriors to his brand new longhouse he calls Hjort. Food and wine and women, it's all there. And they feast and they feast and they feast. But in the distance, a new enemy approaches, hearing their joyous bacchanalia. This was no normal enemy, though. This enemy was a creature unlike the world had ever seen. And as you know from the opening of the episode, this enemy was a monster who laid waste to Hrothgar's feeding, or excuse me, feasting hall, murdering his men with little effort and sending the rest running, their king included. 
And it wasn't some one-off either. No, this went on, as it said, for 12 years. Hrothgar sent man after man after this monster, but none of them ever came back, provoking the king to send word outside of his lands. Enough was enough. As the text itself says so beautifully, quote, too crushing the sorrow that came to the people, loathsome and lasting, the life-grinding torture, greatest of night woes, end quote. And on stage walks our hero. It says, quote, good amengatement of Grendel's achievements. Here in his home of heroes then living, he was stoutest and strongest, sturdy and noble. He bade them prepare him a bark that was trusty. He said he and the war king would seek o'er the ocean, the folk leader noble, since he needed retainers for the perilous project prudent companions. Chided him little, though loving him dearly. They egged the brave Ethling, augured him glory. End quote. I'm telling you, this text is dripping with swag, no question. He bade them prepare him a bark that was trusty. The poet just called a Viking longboat a bark. I mean, come on. This poetry doesn't stop there, though. Right after this, we read the following, simply describing how they pushed off from the beach. Quote, the sea on the sand, soldiers then carried on the breast of the vessel, bright shining jewels, handsome war armor, heroes outshoved then, warming the woodship on its wished-for adventure, the foamy-necked floater fanned by the breeze, like as to bird gliding the waters, till twenty and four hours thereafter, the twist-stemmed vessel had traveled such distance that the sailing men saw the sloping embankments, the sea cliffs gleaming, precipitous mountains, nesses enormous. They were nearing the limits at the end of the ocean. This poet is a lyricist at his, at his absolute best here. So our hero arrives, essentially, on Hrothgar's land. It turns out that our hero is recognized by King Hrothgar as the son of, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Egtheo, a fierce yet highly respected king from faraway Gateland. Our hero, Beowulf, eventually gets down to business and tells Hrothgar, quote, I shall manage the matter with the monster of evil, the giant, decide it. Thee I would therefore beg of thy bounty, bright Danish chieftain, lord of the Skildings, this single petition, not to refuse me, defender of warriors, friend lord of folks, so far have I sought thee that I may unaided, end quote. And having learned that this monster named Grendel used no weapons when slaughtering Hrothgar's men, Beowulf will refuse weapons and help as well. Quote, only with hand grip, the foe I must grapple, fight for my life then, foemen with foemen, end quote. Here we learn of the Anglo-Saxon ideal, a noble warrior who willingly gives him gives up himself for the betterment of not only his own men, but also of those who are stranger to them. That is, the Skildings under King Hrothgar. And it's in this moment I can't help but think of Burtnoff and the Battle of Maldon in 991, as romanticized as it may be. Burtnoff is lifted in the Anglo-Saxon mind as a model of what a nobleman should be, 
bold, imperfect, respected, and able to see the big picture. Like Brutnoff, Beowulf saw the big picture that if Grendel was allowed to continue unchallenged, undefeated, then this scourge may very well expand outside of this small corner of Scandinavia. Later, when one of Hrothgar's men challenges Beowulf, Beowulf, like a boss, calmly responds with a story, and then finally the words, quote, Grendel is not afraid of a single Dane, but he will soon learn to dread the gates. End quote. Beowulf, I'm telling you, he's a beast. He speaks to the queen at the feast, saying, quote, I proposed in spirit when I mounted the ocean, when I boarded my boat with a band of my liegemen, I would work to the fullest the will of your people, or in foes' clutches fastened fall in the battle, deeds I shall do of daring and prowess, or the last of my life days live in this mead hall. End quote. It's ride or die with this guy. There's no other way. Like straight out of Gatlin style. King Hrothgar leaves late that night, entrusting his feast hall to Beowulf, who had a plan. As his men made a raucous, slowly the lights dimmed along with the singing and the laughter, and as it became darker and darker inside Herot, the longhouse, the men fell asleep. Save one. Beowulf sat in the dark that night, alert and listening. His men slept around him. But when Grendel broke into the feast hall that night, he did so with deadly stealth and was able to turn the story into a bit of a horror show, actually. The text says, quote, No thought had the monster of deferring the matter, but on the earliest of occasion, he quickly laid hold of a soldier asleep, suddenly tore him, bit his bone prison, the blood drank in currents, swallowed in mouthfuls. He soon had the dead man's feet and hands, too, eaten entirely, end quote. But when Grendel went for his next victim, the hall burst into a sudden explosion of activity as the men all jumped up ready for a fight. But the next victim was their prince, Beowulf. It says, Caught he quickly the cunning divisor? On his elbow he rested, this early discovered, the master of malice that in Middle-earth's regions, neath the whole of the heavens, no hand grapple greater in any man else had he ever encountered, end quote. Grendel then became deathly afraid and ran away. And if I may, another beautiful line of brilliance by the Beowulf poet here, it says, and off and away, avoiding delay to fly to the Fenmores, he fully was aware of the strength of his grapple in the grip of the foemen. Twas an ill-taken journey that the injury bringing harrying harmer to Harriet wandered. End quote. Well, in short order, though after a terrible wrestling match, Beowulf rips the arm from Grendel, and the monster falls dead thereafter. Okay, okay, fine. Yes, I will move on from the actual story, but if you haven't, again, read it yet, please do yourself a favor and read it. Beowulf's defeat of Grendel is only the beginning, trust me. And the rest of this episode is full of spoilers again, but even knowing what happens takes nothing away from the experience of actually reading it. Now, this story is full of subtext and symbolism. See, if Beowulf was truly written during or just after the tumultuous reign of Ethelred the Unready, which, again, some believe it to have been written, though 
Side note, there are good arguments that it could have been written a century or so earlier. Anyway, if it was written then, it then it becomes a showcase of the seismic cultural shifts occurring not in the hallowed halls and chambers of the nobility, but amongst the peasantry in the fields and villages that punctuate an otherwise wild island kingdom. We have to remember something mentioned on the podcast previously, and that's the idea that a Christian kingdom, quote-unquote, wasn't exactly Christian at its foundation. The lowly peasantry very often held on to their deeply traditional beliefs and customs years or, heck, even decades after its nobility made the switch. Christianity had been in England as early as the 6th century. However, with the attack on Lindisfarne in 793 kicking off the Viking Age, There was a constant stream of Scandinavians invading. And as we know, Scandinavian influence was so powerful that a massive region within the island was named the Danelaw, as it adopted Danish customs and beliefs and kneaded them into the existing Christian societal structure. By the 11th century, yes, we can safely assume that much of England was devoutly Christian. However, those pagan beliefs and practices and folklore were still well known and accepted. We see this pagan-Christian interaction in our modern holidays, such as Christmas trees and Easter bunnies and so on. So again, by the 11th century, I'm actually pretty confident that England was experiencing a bridging of sorts between the ancient pagan ways and the merely old Christian faith. The allusions to the flood and the cursed descendants of Cain make this abundantly clear that it carries with it a well-versed knowledge base of biblical doctrine and lessons and stories, not to mention the old Scandinavian values of what makes a true hero. The Beowulf poet knew his audience without question, and his audience were Anglo-Saxons and Northumbrians and Anglo-Danes who knew the ancient ways as well as the old ways. He's straddling both sides. It's an impressive balancing act, and in fact, the most famous of Beowulf scholars and lecturers, the incomparable author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien, in his lecture called Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics, says this ancient tale hinges on the balance between the old and the young. And I see Tolkien's point, you know. At the beginning, a young Beowulf hits the scene, and the story only ends after his death 50 years later. Beowulf straddled a half-century of this kingdom, and as he aged and lesser problems came and went, what lasted? His deeds from decades before, when he slayed both Grendel and Grendel's mother. And how is he remembered? As a hero who went on to slay a treasure-hoarding dragon, dying in the process. Beowulf, it hits hard, man. But as I was rereading and thinking about this story's subtexts, I can't help but notice a couple things I'd never realized before. See, Beowulf, as I said, straddles the Christian and the Norse pagan, the old and the new. We see him first in a biblical context in terms of him being the avenger of Abel, so to speak, by killing the terrifying descendant of Cain and Grendel's mother as well, also a descendant of Cain the creation and the creator of that current incarnation of the line of Cain. Beowulf, when seen through that lens, was a liberator in more ways than one. He not only liberated Hrothgar's kingdom, but he also symbolically liberated mankind of Cain's repercussions. 
he liberated humanity of Cain's sin, so to speak. The early parts of the story are rife with biblical symbolism. However, when we see him last, he dies defeating an ancient foe, a dragon. Now, one can think this is just a fitting ending to a deserving hero, but I see more to it than that. I see it as though the author is clearly cognizant of writing for a Christian audience, knowing that Christianity isn't really going anywhere in the near future. Was it Christianity that overcame the pagan Beowulf? Did Beowulf die under the plots of Christian lore? No, the only thing that could defeat Beowulf was the old ways, Norse paganism. It wasn't the descendants of Cain. It was a creature feared long before Christianity hit English lands. But even then, Beowulf wasn't fully defeated, was he? No, in fact, Beowulf outlived his death. He died a legend. Names are all that are remembered in the end, and with every name comes a story. Here, Beowulf was defeated by the dragon, but the dragon was also defeated by Beowulf. At the end of the day, Beowulf was never bested by the old ways or the new. So what can we draw from that? Christianity can be overcome, but in the end, the old ways will never be forgotten. Listen, I'm not looking to upset anyone here. That's just one interpretation, and I understand that you could probably poke some holes in it. I'm interested in hearing your takes on it, so make sure you post up on Facebook and Twitter. But look, think about when the Beowulf poet wrote this. If not in the first years of the 11th century, when the oldest known manuscript was written again, then it has also been speculated as being written as early as the 9th century. Either way, in the North Sea region, Christianity wasn't a done deal, an easy layup. It took time for Christianity to take root in the peasantry. If you remember, Harold Hardrada's half-brother, King St. Olaf, led very minor campaigns into the mountain and hill villages inland into modern-day Norway in order to enforce Christianity, sometimes bloodily enforce. And even then, like any rebellious teenager, the moment Dad walked out of the room, they went right back to what they weren't supposed to be doing. As far as we know, the Beowulf poet didn't exactly think that Christianity would inevitably take over from the top down. It was almost like he was hedging his bets in a way. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but the Beowulf poet didn't have su such luxuries like we do today. So this begs the question, what did the author see that has failed to come down to us today? Well, the author lived in a sort of balance of Christianity and Norse pagan belief structures again. But if Christianity was on the rise, then why end it by punctuating a very heroic pagan warrior's death? There was a great opportunity to continue the story and have him die on some metaphorical altar as a way of magnifying the sacrifices of Jesus Christ from the New Testament. Christian themes were everywhere in this very pagan setting, right? This could have been a story of Christianity's overcoming of paganism in Scandinavia and England. There was another great chance, right? Right. Right when Beowulf defeated Grendel's mother, maybe? Grendel, again, descendant of Cain and his mother, a witch, defeating not only Cain symbolically, but also a symbol for the darkness in the world, would have been a way to solidify Beowulf as a purely Christian allegory. But that's not what our author did, was it? Beowulf defeated Grendel and his mother, and then lived another 50 years, reigning over the gates in Gateland. 
and it was only when a powerful pagan enemy killed him did he finally die. Well, kind of, right? So again, what exactly was the Beowulf poet playing at here? I don't know for sure, to be honest, and no one does, really. So let's think about this together. The Norse did believe in an afterlife, to be sure, as many of us know from reading about Norse mythology growing up. No? Just me? Well, Vikings had a complex afterlife, just like Christians, Greeks, Romans, and any other belief system you can think of. Hell, spelled H-E-L, was both the place and the goddess of death, just like Hades, mind you, and was one of the children of the trickster god, Loki. Hell, the place, was... Uh, for lack of a better word, downward, in whatever manifestation that means for you. It should sound pretty familiar to our Western mind, because that's some of what was incorporated into Christian belief. Though Christianity did have a built-in villain in the fallen angel Lucifer to marry into the idea of a quote-unquote bad place, especially when Christianity was born into Hellenistic Holy Land, where Hades was already inhabiting a similar place in their hearts and minds. As a maritime people, the Norse also knew of the goddess Ran, or Ran, who lived in the sea and welcomed Scandinavians who sank to their depths, where they would live forever in her watery realm if they didn't die a warrior's death in some sea battle. And finally, the most well-known belief proving Vikings' belief in the afterlife is, of course, Valhalla. Valhalla was the hall of warriors who died a hero's death in battle, they died. They dined with Odin daily in his magnificent home. Anyway, we get the idea, right? So Vikings also believed in a soul. I mean, some part of people had to inhabit hell or Valhalla after death, right? This manifested in two types of burials. In regular internment, the body would decay, thus freeing the ethereal spirit to head to where it needed to end up. Unfortunately, though, some spirits would get lost along the way, leading to ghost stories, but that's a whole different string of episodes. Cremation, however, seemed to be the checkout lane of death rites, as it quickly released the soul through the fire's smoke. Either way, Beowulf was bound to end up somewhere after his death. But where? Did he earn his way into Valhalla as the hero of a Christian story? Or did he earn his way to hell, with two L's, not one, as a pagan hero. This is the tough part about Beowulf that I absolutely love. Technically, you can read this through two different lenses, can't you? Valhalla or Hell, with two L's. What we know for sure is that he died defeating the dragon, which is a heroic death to be sure, a sacrificial death for the betterment of his people. Picture Harry Potter's near death by the basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets. A poisonous fang punctures his skin as he delivers the killing blow. Only Beowulf doesn't have the tears of a phoenix to pull him back from the brink of death, unfortunately. And though it was a hero's death, it was also kind of a foolish one, right? After decades of being a king and living in the shadow of his own legend, he became too proud and felt that age didn't matter. We can assume that he believed that if the Grendel situation were to happen when he was in his 70s, then he'd still be able to defeat both of the monsters, but... As you and I and the rest of the audience knows, that's just simply not the case. Beowulf was a just and fair ruler, a legend of his day throughout Scandinavia. But one's past 
does not dictate one's present. Beowulf, though still a capable and powerful leader, was not the same brash young warrior he once was. So when the dragon came along, Beowulf knew of two certainties. One, defeat the dragon to save his kingdom, and two, defeat the dragon to gain its hidden treasures. If this decision to defeat the dragon was as pure as he'd like us to think, then why was he buried with all of the dragon's treasures? If it was truly about the people, then wouldn't he want that treasure spread around to, well, his people? Listen, in the end, Beowulf served as a bountiful source of action, adventure, drama, heroic deeds, and life lessons. He was both a hero and a villain in many ways. So was he a character built upon an ideal, or was he a reflection of current leadership? Was he something to aspire to, or was he a cautionary tale? And the answer is... Yes. So how can we use this to describe Anglo-Saxon culture and leadership? Well, to be absolutely clear, whether Beowulf was originally written in the 9th century or the early 11th century when our oldest existing manuscript uh, was written, the point is, is that it was, to- it was a story told and retold during the reign of King Ethelred II during the Danish conquest. Was Beowulf held up as a hero or a cautionary tale? What about Ethelred's reign would lead you to believe that the English thought of him as a hero? As a villain? As a cautionary tale? Something tells me that Beowulf's audience most likely saw their king as a cautionary tale. A man who made mistake after mistake that smelled strangely like the stench of an old man who was a bit too proud of his previous years of peace. Remind you of anyone in England during the late 900s and early 1000s? Maybe we'll return to Beowulf down the road as we've only scratched the surface of this amazing tale. As a reminder, Beowulf is the earliest story we have that has survived from Anglo-Saxon England. And again, it's a dead giveaway that England's sight, culturally and politically, if not religiously, was firmly set eastward toward Scandinavia. And it's very, very interesting in the context of what would happen starting in 1066. I think Beowulf, at the end of the day, is a solid glimpse into Anglo-Saxon society's almost schizophrenic tug-of-war experience during the Viking Age. If you think about it, prior to 793, England was a just a disjointed island of tensely divided kingdoms. It's, it solidified itself over the course of the Viking Age with the exception of the Scottish clans and Welsh kingdoms. It was finally conquered, so to speak, by the Danes in the early 11th century, only to be torn between Scandinavia and mainland Europe during the reign of Edward, until finally, once and for all, England was ripped from the powerful grasp of Scandinavia when Harold Hardrada was killed, and then had its face forcibly redirected across the Channel when Duke William of Normandy defeated King Harold Godwinson and his English forces at Hastings. Beowulf is a towering story that allows us today to have a very real glimpse of England, the England of over a thousand years ago. Through its hazy fog of mysticism and monsters and witches and overbearing mothers and and confused sons and, and dragons guarding gold, we find a storyteller torn between two worlds, that of the Christian 
and that of the Scandinavian. Yet both of these worlds, much like the island that this story originated on, melded seamlessly into each other to create one of the richest stories ever told. Hope you enjoyed today's episode on Beowulf, one of my favorites. Next week, we take a look at something that happened in the early 11th century. It's a heresy. Simple, sure, but a heresy that would set an incredibly dangerous precedent. Until next time.